Good morning, fine citizens of Sheboygan and the world. As you probably know, you can listen to this show live, as you may be doing right now, but also uh, on anywhere you get your podcasts, such as um, Apple Podcasts or uh, other places, too. <laughs> if you don't have the ability to tune in at 8 o'clock every Saturday, then you can listen at your leisure at other times. Anyway, I um, hope you are enjoying this fall weekend. And uh, it's warm. It's going to be warm anyway, is what I heard. And it kind of it's that time of year where things are starting to change. We're reflecting on how the summer went by too quickly. And... Those thoughts of the impending cold <laughs> are invading my thought process. Be that as it may. Um, there was a very interesting development in a fairly high-profile case, if you follow these kinds of things. A cardinal in the Catholic Church um, has been accused of sexually assaulting a 16-year-old boy. And as that process has been working its way through the court system, the issue came up regarding the Cardinal's uh, competency. And I want to talk about what that is, because sometimes people confuse that with another concept that's similar but very distinct, and that has to do with not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. And to make the distinction, um, we call it NGI, because it used to be not guilty due to insanity, by reason of insanity. But we don't like to use that word anymore, so we say mental disease or defect, but that's too many letters to have a convenient acronym, so we still say NGI. What NGI means is that at the time that an alleged offense was committed, when it's actually happening, the defendant lacked the capacity, the ability, to, number one, know the difference between right and wrong, and or number two, had the inability to conform one's behavior or actions in conformity with what is right and what is wrong. Now, that creates one of these issues in the law that I often refer to as um, existing out of necessity. And a great example of that necessity concept. When I say, when I mean necessity, I mean something that if we didn't have that rule, there would be a problem with uh, the overall philosophy of how justice should work. So on the one hand, we hold people responsible for their conduct when they make conscious decisions to do bad things. When one violates the law, they're held accountable because of a decision that they made. Um, we call it mens rea, combine that with actus reus, which uh, is the combination of thought and act. So one may do something that is by action against the law, but if they don't have the requisite intent behind it, then it's missing an element of an offense, right? Now, compare that with the idea that we have always said in our legal system and virtually every other one that exists, that ignorance of the law is no defense. 
and this is something that, again, it has to be that way out of necessity because the law can be complicated. And in fact, lawyers and judges spend hours and hours uh, all the time debating over what the law is and what it says and what it's supposed to mean. We get into areas as complicated as legislative intent. You know, even though the words of the law say one thing, applied to a variety of different fact scenarios, what what makes the most sense and what can we imagine that the lawmakers had in mind when they made a particular law? So imagine one cannot come into court and say, Your Honor, I just never read the statutes. I didn't realize that bank robbery... Uh, is against the law because I never read that book. No one ever told me. Um, I I just failed to notice that it's against the law. Now, that's a, kind of an extreme example. But when you look at the complexities, and the, it happens all the time with clients I represent, where they do something, they had no idea that it was against some law somewhere. And... You can't, that's not a defense. You can't come in and say, no one told me, or I didn't bother to read it. Or if you read it and you thought something different than what the legislators had in mind, right? So you, you can't claim ignorance in a situation. Yet at the same time, we only hold people accountable when they willingly do something. Now, it's it's the intent to do the thing, not the intent to do the wrong thing, necessarily, um, that we're talking about. So, if somebody is suffering from either a chronic uh, mental health issue, it can apply sometimes um, in impairment-type situations, but I know we've had this discussion many times about how, how in, as we fit different principles of law, the OWI statutes or the drunk driving statutes are kind of a, an odd little aspect to it because we, at the one on the one hand, we say people cannot be trusted to exercise good judgment and know what they're doing when they're driving a car. But at the same time, we expect people to conform their behavior in such a way so that they do know what they're doing by not getting behind the wheel. It gets into a kind of a slippery area when we talk about principles of jurisprudence. But... Um, the way that we get around that is if someone uh, is impaired and if they are driving, you know, it doesn't really matter whether the person intended to be impaired um, or if they were accurately perceiving their impairment. But again, that's another area where there is the defense of involuntary intoxication. The most common example of that is somebody gets, you know, slipped a roofie or something like that at a bar. And we've seen those kinds of cases where something happened that was completely beyond the person's control that rendered them in a state where they were unable to conform their conduct to the law. But more often, what we see in this type of scenario is when somebody is suffering from, you know, a mental disease or defect. And that sounds weird to say defect, like, you know, it's a bad thing. It's not necessarily. It's something that is not normal. (laughs) Then again, who is normal? Who's that normal person? Is there such a thing? I don't know. But if it's something that interferes with a person's, um, you know, ability to control this or to perceive reality, we see this most often with people that have schizoid type um, 
maladies, where there's a break with the ability to perceive reality. Um, An example is a person's not sure what year it is, what their name is, what country they're in, um, etc. And due to that lack of the ability to perceive what, you know, we would otherwise define as reality, it can um, have a problem as it relates to our legal principles and what we will stand by. So it's kind of like this exception to the general rule that you're responsible for everything you do. And if it can be found that a person suffered from, uh, you know, such a mental disease or defect at the time of the commission of an alleged offense, then in Wisconsin anyway, the way that works is that somebody then is committed to care in a mental health setting. Now, that can be on an inpatient basis, on an outpatient basis. Um, And in many cases, it's not better than if the person had been convicted of the actual crime. Let's, Let's talk about a homicide, for example. Someone's found NGI in a homicide. The standard result in that is that a person is committed to... Um, mental health care, usually in an inpatient setting for up to the maximum amount of time that would have been available had the person been convicted of the crime. So if it's a, let's say the person's found NGI in a first degree intentional homicide, well, the maximum penalty for that is life, right? So somebody could be under the care of mental health uh, professionals on an inpatient basis in a mental health hospital for life, theoretically. Um, now, there are processes by which one can be reevaluated, and if they are deemed to be fully recovered from whatever situation rendered them unable to be held accountable, then it can be reviewed. But um, it's kind of designed that way so that there's not much of a perceived benefit in order for someone to say that they or go through the process of being found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. All right, we'll pick up on that point when we come back right after these messages. Before the break, we were talking about the concept of when someone is found not responsible, not guilty as a result of um, suffering from a mental disease or defect at the time of the commission of an offense. And uh, let's compare that with this issue of competency, because competency has to do with what's happening right now, not what happened at the time that an offense was committed. It has to do with a person's ability to assist in their own defense. And that also has to do with one's ability to perceive reality and so forth. So when somebody goes through a competency evaluation, there are mental health professionals that that do this um, on a regular basis. And there's a series of questions that are asked. And it, it kind of always puzzles me because the questions are very basic. Like, tell me what you're charged with. And if the person has some idea of what they're charged with, even if it's not, you know, complete or, you know, entirely accurate, well, that's that's one thing that shows they know what's going on. Then questions like, what do what does a lawyer do? How does a lawyer help you 
What does a judge do? Tell me what a jury trial is. What do jurors do? Um, that kind of thing. So if someone, <laughs> if you were so out of it that you have no idea about any of those things, it really does beg the question, um, what's the use in holding somebody accountable if they they don't even understand what's going on? But as you can probably imagine, that's a very difficult question to answer because it's built into these competency evaluations that the evaluators, and I'm not saying all of them, but I think it's just a trend amongst those that, that make these types of determinations, that they're on the lookout for what we could probably call malingering or somebody that is faking, right? So imagine the difference. Let's say I'm a defendant and I'm going through a competency evaluation and they ask me what I'm charged with and I say, oh, I'm charged with being uh, the man on the moon and eating green cheese. Now, if I really believe that and if I convince the evaluator that that's my true belief, then I, I may be incompetent. On the other hand, if I want this evaluator to believe that I'm not competent, that's probably the kind of thing that I would say. So there's this element of, you know, trying to ferret out when someone is perhaps faking it. Now, how do we deal with that? Number one, there are <clears throat> actuarial instruments, tools, that can be used to detect, <clears throat> you know, insincere answers, things like that. Um, but again, this this all has to do with questions and answers, words. There's nothing that, um, you know, can organically, mathematically measure one's competence that way. It's not like you can plug somebody into the wall or into a computer and that can tell you if they're competent or not. So, going back to why we even have this principle, it's that one has not only the right to representation and not only the right to confront witnesses against them, but one has the right to understand what is happening because one's liberty is at risk. So, we kind of find this concept buried within the process, you know, the concepts of due process and confrontation. And although we have the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, there's another layer on top of that, which means a person should understand the nature of proceedings. There's also been cases where somebody, you know, for various reasons, might not be competent to understand what sentence they're receiving. Because, remember, sentencing is supposed to accomplish many different goals. One of them is protection of the public. Another is deterrence of others who may commit similar offenses. But you know, one of the main things is to deter this individual from doing the same thing again and to understand that if they're going to prison, why that is. What did you do that resulted in you going to prison for a period of time? And it's essential that someone not only be told that, but that they understand it. So we, we have these cases where somebody may be competent for one purpose or temporarily competent, but then loses competency um, due to some other aspect of the case. 
Um, so another kind of stopgap here that makes it so we can keep our legal principles in line is that <clears throat> it's when one's found not competent or incompetent um, at a stage in litigation, the, the usual remedy is that everything gets put on hold. And the, we wait and see if the person is going to regain competency. Sometimes, if it's a serious offense, that results in the person, in many cases, uh, remaining in custody. So, think about this. If it's an age-related infirmity, if it has to do with um, advanced age, and that's why the person is not competent at the present time, that's not likely going to get better with the passage of time. But, assuming that that is not the case, then there are times when someone may be held in custody, usually, but sometimes not, while an ongoing evaluation process occurs and everything gets put on hold. And if the person regains competency, then things can pick up where they left off. It gets me into another area that I want to talk about here, and that has to do with how quickly um, in an ideal world, crimes would be resolved in such a way that it, not too much time has passed. And we hear this often when people are talking about, you know, the concept, you've heard the expression, justice delayed is justice denied. And I, I've always thought that's kind of a silly expression because what you're saying is make everything go as fast as it possibly can. But there there are good reasons for things to happen sooner rather than later. Not least of which is that we have a concept in the law called the statute of limitations. And that's another concept that is a combination of fairness, but also um, out of necessity. Because and this is a concept that goes way, way back into our common law days. And, and in many jurisdictions, many different legal systems throughout the world incorporate this concept. And that is that if too much time goes by, the reliability of a result becomes less um, robust. In other words, the risk that a jury might get it wrong because of the passage of time is heightened. So for most of our existence in the law, there have been statutes of limitation that apply to civil cases, criminal charges, and the, you know, for a felony level offense, the default statute of limitations in Wisconsin is generally six years. But over time, and we can attribute this mostly to lawmakers that like to say that they've done something to protect victims of crime and so forth. Um, we've had these provisions that toll the statute of limitations. Tolling, T-O-L-L, meaning it's basically suspended. And that can exist under a variety of different circumstances. But the area that we see this most often applied is either in the realm of a first-degree homicide or murder, as we used to call it, or various types of sexual offenses that are committed against minors. And the theory behind changing how we view the statutes of limitation in those contexts is that, and this is legit, I mean, 
uh, a child may have the inability or reluctance to come forward on something. And many years go by when that child then matures into an adult and is in a better place um, mentally, psychologically, and so forth to come forward with an allegation, then we as a society say, okay, that, that makes sense to not apply the standard six-year statute of limitations. So it can be told for a very long time. Now, there's an exception to that, which is that if something was reported and investigated, and if no action was taken uh, during the original statute of limitations, um, or really prior to the commencement of any criminal proceeding, I think you can make that same argument. And then it will, and there was a discretionary decision that was an informed one by the prosecution to not proceed. Then, you know, there, that tolling provision doesn't necessarily apply. But those are the types of things we argue about in court all the time. So time for another break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, we're talking about competency. And um, we were getting into some of the issues that relate to why we have statutes of limitation and how they get extended. And that relates to competency because when someone is found incompetent, it basically stops the clock running for a number of different purposes, including speedy trial, including statutes of limitation, and so forth. Um, where someone can be continually evaluated. Now, there comes a time when, again, these principles are something that has, have to be applied on a case-by-case -case basis with a mind's eye towards what is proper and just, weighing um, the rights of the people, us, all of us, to have um, and live in a safe community that uh, where crime is appropriately prosecuted, but also the rights of any person accused of such an offense um, to have it be fair. So, it, you know, it is true when you think about it that if many, many years pass between an event of significance and then we call witnesses in who have had that delay in time, um, it's just a natural recognized function of human behavior and human thought that one's perception of what happens is altered over time. It's because we're not perfect. We're human beings. It's also more difficult as time goes by to investigate things about the case. For example, um, this does come up all the time. Someone gets charged with an offense that, that supposedly occurred 20, 30 years ago. And because of the tolling provisions that apply, um, one has to defend him or herself against, you know, they have to go back and investigate what happened. And this comes up most often, and it's most problematic in the context of researching an alibi. An alibi is actually an affirmative defense. And, you know, I think in common parlance, we say, what's your alibi? You know, like, what's your excuse? Alibi actually means that you weren't there and it wasn't you. You were somewhere else and you can prove it. So that's why it's an affirmative defense. You have to actually offer that evidence as a defendant as to where you were, who you were with, and how those facts demonstrate that it's basically impossible, or at least unlikely, 
that you committed the offense that you're being charged with. And the rules for that, again, they're different than standard um, responses to how one defends a case. The vast majority of cases that don't have affirmative defenses simply require that the prosecution prove every element of an offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's no burden on the defendant, either in terms of production or uh, persuasion. So think about that. If, if someone is accused of doing something 30 years ago, and you got to go back and say, okay, well, wait a minute, was I even there? It'd be one thing to establish where you were a week ago, or six months ago, or a year ago. But going back 20 or 30 years can be very problematic. Um, and if you're deprived of the opportunity to establish those things just because of the passage of time, it's one of the reasons why we have a lot of litigation in this area and why there's a lot of dispute over whether something like that can proceed. Because if the defendant is hindered in the ability to you know, comply with the discovery requirements and the notice requirements for an alibi defense because of that passage of time, it, it makes it so it's not fair. That's the idea. So um, we, we've done a lot of things to make it so that basic idea that too much time going by is harmful to the integrity of the system just in terms of um, the reliability of an outcome. But on top of that, as I've mentioned, there is a necessity, or I guess I could say a convenience aspect of this. And that's another idea that when statutes of limitation were, you know, basically envisioned, is that any court system can only handle so many cases. And yes, it's true that you can add more judges, you can add more prosecutors, you can add more investigators, you can you know, bolster or build up the system in such a way so that it can accommodate more prosecution. On the other hand, there has to be some way that things can be limited in order for the system to work. Because if there wasn't that type of limitation, uh, there would be much more litigation. I mean, all it takes is an allegation. All it takes is this thing happened, you know. And yes, there's investigation that occurs. And yes, it has to rise to the level of at least probable cause. And yes, there has to be corroboration and so forth. But in general, this idea that after a certain period of time, um, there is a lesser interest that society has in proceeding with such an action is, is a legit point. So um, all of that <clears throat> really... Um, has to be thought about when we're tinkering with the law, when we're trying to make changes. And I know that I always do this, but once again, I'm going to go to Marcy's Law, the change in our state constitution that attempts to, or at least purports to, give victims and witnesses of crimes uh, constitutional standing um, on a par with defendants who have constitutional rights. So it's basically incorporating those rights that are applied to defendants in criminal actions to protect them, by the way, 
um, so that there's this feeling of, you know, the the odds are, or the, you know, those rights aren't tipped too far in favor of one side or the other as a way to kind of equate or balance things out. Now, I get it. I mean, all of this came from, you know, a lot of, in some cases, highly publicized situations. And Marcy's Law, of course, is named after a, a person named Marcy that had a very unfortunate um, set of things happen to her as a result of problems with primarily the notification procedures in the justice system that existed in that particular case. But it's been expanded to apply to all these other contexts. Um, It seems like every opportunity to invoke Marcy's Law to, to get what somebody wants has been that's been ever increasing, and I, and I find this. I'm not sure how I feel about it to tell you the truth because it's still s- sort of something that's happening. But we see a lot of lawyers that now have a new um, aspect of their practice, and that is to be advocates for victims of crime and to bill by the hour and to make money doing that. I will tell you, and you should be aware of this, that in Wisconsin we have publicly funded, tax dollar-based programs, uh, professionals, people that work every day um, as victim witness coordinators as part of every DA's office. Uh, I'm not sure that every DA's office has one or more of these professionals, but all the ones that I deal with do. And... That's somebody who is, you know, very familiar with the court process. They're actually assigned as kind of a subsection of the district attorney's office to provide those services. But because Marcy's Law has all this language about the right to be heard, the right to be present, the right for input, um, there are some lawyers out there that are have started a new business of... Um, making appearances and making arguments and, and and basically advocating on behalf of a victim in spite of the fact that we already have those resources that we all pay for. Um, so what we see is this continues to get expanded into areas that I don't think anybody thought would be part of this model, um, including things as recently as, I think it was a few weeks ago, there was an article about how Marcy's Law is being invoked in order to not allow the addresses of police officers to be available to defense lawyers. Now, you might wonder, why does that matter? Well, we have to make sure that witnesses are properly served through subpoenas. And one of the ways that that happens is personal service. And, you know, <laughs> if, it, if this is something where it just gets harder to be able to um, have personal service on a witness, I don't think people think about that. What they're imagining is that, oh, if the defense lawyer is aware of a law enforcement officer's address, the defendant might learn of that and they might get mad and they might do something. Well, that's all in the abstract. And, and by thinking about the possibility of something like that happening, or if you use one event, one instance, and say, oh, we don't like that thing that happened. Without 
thinking of the ramifications of how it affects the larger picture, it just creates more problems. All right, it's time for a break. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to switch gears. I want to talk about uh, former New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. And I'm not going to talk about all the criminal things that are pending right now. I want to talk specifically about a decision that was made relating to the defamation case where he is defendant in, in civil court. And if you didn't hear on the news, I'll tell you, uh, he, as the defendant in that case, has not only been held in default, in default judgment, but has also been hit with sanctions and penalties as a result of conduct attributable to him as part of the litigation. So just to kind of give you some background here, this all has to do with two individuals that were accused by Giuliani of um, secretly loading data into a voting machine and was something that he said not only publicly but also as part of his podcast that he has that um, this event was part of the you know the election being rigged and so forth and it turns out that it was i don't recall it was like a tic-tac box or something like that and it was very clearly established that it was not at all what he um had originally alleged it to be but then continued saying this and uh so a cause of action was initiated in civil court and uh for defamation and so in civil court, this is something that always kind of fascinates me. I mean, in criminal cases, it's very clear where the evidence comes from. It's gathered by investigators that then turn it over to the correct prosecutorial authority. They then have an obligation under law to provide evidence to the defense, saying this is our evidence. This is what we intend to rely on when we're going forward in this case. Well, it's a completely different world when we're talking about civil cases, because there is no prosecutor. There's a plaintiff, and it, and we also use the word defendant, but we, need, we mean something different in that context. We mean one who is defending against the civil claim. Now, the big difference between civil and criminal, as you probably know, is that criminal charges result in the potential for one's deprivation of liberty. Uh, in other words, jail or prison, and other uh, penalty consequences. In the civil realm, it's about money, almost always. I mean, practically everything that happens in the civil realm is people fighting over money, which means you have you don't have this same sort of um, sovereign involved. There's not there's not a government agency typically that is doing the investigation and then charging somebody with an offense. Now, there are civil cases that are initiated by the federal government, and there can be civil forfeiture actions that are initiated by uh, local prosecutors as well. But that's kind of a subcategory or a, a subgenre of criminal prosecution, and it's still designed to be punitive in nature. So going back to our pure civil-type case, the way discovery works is that both sides have both obligations and opportunities to gather and obtain evidence. And the other thing that's kind of odd about civil practice is that uh, a person doesn't have to have, 
you know, a complete case just yet when they initiate it. They have to have an idea with some facts that they can allege that, if true, would give that person a cause of action. And then, once that case is accepted and there's been an answer that's been filed, there's then a very, sometimes very lengthy and very complicated process of civil discovery that occurs. If you've heard of interrogatories or depositions and things like that, these are all things that happen in the civil context. Um, And it's a way for the parties to basically work amongst themselves under the rules of civil discovery in order to be ready, or in other words, to um, more finitely or, I guess, uh, more precisely narrow what the factual disputes are. So in order to do that, you know, both sides kind of have to figure out better than they knew just in kind of an absence of this information, uh, where their evidence is and what they're going to do with it. And then judges often get involved where one side or the other is claiming that um, the other side isn't complying with the rules or they've failed to uh, respond properly or in good faith and so on. So then judges get involved and they have to make orders that say you, you know, defendant or you plaintiff, you have to do this by this date and do these other things in order to make sure that discovery is not only complete, but also, you know, possible. So one of the things that comes up in, in this kind of case is that there was an order by the judge to, an order to preserve. And that's something that once somebody has noticed that they are in possession of evidence that could be important to litigation that is, you know, obvious, either because of the filing of a civil complaint or because it would be apparent that one is facing liability, civil liability, that uh, they have a duty to preserve. Now, it's most clear when someone gets hit with a complaint that they're being sued, because then you know that if you go and delete all of your emails or if you go and start shredding things, that there are problems with that because then you engaged in the destruction of discovery and you can be found to have violated rules. Now, the thing that makes the Giuliani case so... Let's throw a wrench in this whole thing. Concurrent with, I shouldn't say completely concurrent with, but overlapping this civil case is the FBI investigation into, as we all know, some of the January 6th related activities, but also there have been ongoing investigations into Giuliani's uh, dealings with foreign agents, um, several things having to do with um, Ukraine and so on. And those are all things that the FBI executed a series of warrants and retrieved physical uh, data devices, including phones, computers, etc., from Giuliani and his businesses and his business associates. And for some time, uh, including relevant times during the civil litigation, he and his lawyers didn't have access to those devices because they were being uh, downloaded and investigated by the FBI. So I kind of, I kind of understand here that when he sa- he comes into court and says, "Look, I can't comply with this right now because the FBI has my stuff," and then after he got his stuff back, 
There was some back and forthing. At one point, he claimed that everything had been wiped clean. And then at another point, well, maybe it wasn't wiped clean. And then there was a backup, but then the backup, you know, wasn't properly handled and all this other stuff. So that, that's problematic enough. And, of course, the judge in this 57-page opinion uh, spared no mercy when um, she was calling him out on the various violations. But more importantly, the, the kind of the tactics that uh, appear to be at work here was something that the judge was particularly displeased with. Um, during court at one point, Giuliani had stated that you know, he understands the rules. He knows what he's supposed to do. After all, and this is him saying, I've been a lawyer for more than 50 years. You don't have to lecture me type thing. So the judge liked, repeated that over and over again in this written opinion about, well, if he's the guy that's been doing this for 50 years, then yes, he should know that you can't uh, halfway comply with court orders or, or do it in such a way that you're being sly about it. So... For various reasons I, I that are not completely known, um, Giuliani tried to put an end to all of this controversy by saying he wanted to enter a nolo contendre, which is not correct. <laughs> it's not the correct terminology, but he tried. He said that um, admitting liability, including punitive damages, etc., and just didn't want to participate anymore in any of the discovery. Okay, well. That that can kind of work in some situations, but the way that happens is that there's a settlement, and there had been a settlement offer that had been potentially worked out between the parties that he firmly rejected. But instead, he's like, "No, no, no, no! I just admit liability. I'll I'll pay, and and I want to be done." And in doing so, so then the court receives that communication from him, and they're like, "Okay, well, if that's what you want to do, you'll need to stipulate." to all of these various things, because that's what would happen, you know, if you're admitting liability here. All of these things have to be admitted to. And his response was, well, I'll admit to some of those things, but I want to reserve other things, and and I want to be able to argue this on appeal, which, by the way, if you resolve a case by in that way, there's really no way to appeal it, but anyway. So the judge saw all this as being a combination of irresponsible and... Um, willfully um, obstructionist. She granted default judgment for the plaintiffs. And there's still ongoing litigation to determine how much money that means. Anyway, we'll follow up with this as it develops, but until next week, have a great weekend. Tune in as you can every Saturday, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHPL. It's Legal Defense.